chapter 5. Father, we come to you this morning in need of your Spirit to understand the things of the Spirit. Paul wrote in Corinthians that the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit because the things of the Spirit are discerned by the Spirit giving utterance. And so, Father, this morning as I try to communicate what you've been showing me this week through your Word, I pray that your Spirit would come and minister to each one of us. We all have different things we're going through right now. We all have different circumstances that we've been raised up in. We all have different um, life application that we need. And we know that your word is fit and able and your spirit is desiring to teach each one of us what we need for this particular week. And so, Father, I pray that you would be free to do that, that each and every person here would receive from you that which they need in order to grow more like Jesus and to live a life of godliness that reflects you, Lord. So, Father, would you do that? Would you pour out your Spirit upon our gathering? Would you pour out your Spirit upon our minds and our hearts so that we could understand the the word that the Spirit has for us? In Jesus' name, amen. So in 1 John, um, I've communicated many times that John is really writing so that we may know some things. And there are things that you can know as a believer that are things that do not change. God is the same yesterday today and forever. So the same God that that made a covenant with Israel in the Old Testament is the same God that's made a covenant with you and I, that it's a covenant no longer by blood of bulls and goats, but a covenant he's made with us through the blood of his son. And so as we have that as a foundational truth, the question becomes, what do we know for sure? So as we're in 1 John chapter 5, I've written for you here some notes, but we're going to just real quickly go over what we studied last week, which is, whoever believes, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, meaning Jesus, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we know that we love the children of God when we love God above all else. This is the greatest commandment. Love God and love your neighbor. So when we keep God's commandments, we know that we love the children of God. And when we realize that we've been loved, we keep his commandments. And I read from you in Luke chapter 7, last week or the week before, about the woman that was, came in while Jesus was eating with a Pharisee. And while Jesus was eating with a Pharisee, the woman comes in and she, weeping, takes her tears and her hair and washes the feet of Jesus. She also breaks this alabaster flask, a very expensive perfume, and pours it on his feet and anoints him for burial. But she does this not because a law says you have to. She does this because she recognizes that she's been forgiven and truly loved like no one else has ever shown her. So she's compelled by the love of Jesus to love Jesus back. 
Not because there's a law that states that she must, but because she can't help it. She has gratitude welling up within her. Which made me think of another story in Genesis in chapter 29. Now you don't have to turn there, but Jacob has left his family. He's traveled back to where his family originally came from. And as he gets there, he he meets this woman. And he immediately is smitten. He meets her at the well, and he asks, you know, Lord, if this is... Well, actually, I'm mixing stories together. I'm thinking about Isaac. But Jacob shows up, and he meets this woman by the name of Rachel. And Rachel is gorgeous, and she seems to have character. Although, I, that makes me wonder why Jacob even wanted to be around her, because he didn't have any character. But God was still working on him. So he meets Rachel, and as he meets Rachel... His eventually, what happens in Genesis 29, verse 18, is he says, I want to marry your daughter, and he says, I want to work for you. So the agreement becomes that he can marry Laban's daughter, Rachel, if he works for Laban, free of charge, for seven years. Now, if you've ever worked seven years anywhere, which is becoming less and less likely, as if we switch jobs very quickly, but if you work seven years anywhere, you know that that's no short time. And so working for seven years, he then, that's basically his dowry in order to guarantee that he gets to marry Rachel. And then Laban, being a trickster, basically puts a veil on his older daughter, Leah, and puts her in the wedding. And then when they consummate, he wakes up the next morning and goes, this isn't Rachel, it's Leah, I've been shafted. And so imagine that if you're Leah, (laughs) shafted i'm pretty great you know but anyway he after that he talks to laban he goes why did you give me the wrong daughter and he says no matter in our culture the younger sister can't marry first and so essentially he says if you work for us another seven years then you can have rachel and so he says okay and the bible implies that that next seven years went by very quickly for him why because he loved Rachel. Seven years is no time. And so I say all that to say that God, who has loved us so much, when we truly recognize how much he's loved us, it becomes like a quick seven years. It's no big deal. To do, to love God and to keep his commandments is not a burden. It's actually a blessing. It's very quick. And so, Jesse, can you do me a favor? Can you turn down the gain on channel one just slightly? the knob at the very top of channel one. So that said, as we continue on in 1 John, compelled by the love of Christ, here's what we also need to know from that day and age. From that, that's perfect. Did you do it? That's perfect. Thank you. I had a little bit of feedback. So what we know for sure is that in the day that John writes this, there was a false teaching going around. And the false teaching was being spread that Jesus was not God, but he was actually merely a man. He's a human being. Now, that teaching obviously or ignored the Christmas story because as the angel comes to Mary, he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a child. And she says, how can this happen? I've not known a man. And he says, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. The power of the Almighty is going to place a child within your womb supernaturally, it's born of the Spirit of God. And so, but the teaching was in that day, these, these uh, ones that knew, 
They had this super knowledge that they were going to infuse and give to the people that were kind of not understanding all the, the deep truths of God. And so they would come along and say, yeah, Jesus was a good guy, but he wasn't God. He wasn't deity. He wasn't actually the Son of God. Jesus was just merely a man. Well, that's confusing because everything that Jesus taught was that he was, in fact, the Son of God. Over and over again, he said, I am God. As a matter of fact, that's why they wanted to kill him, because he was claiming to be God, which was blasphemy. And so what they were teaching was that the Spirit of the Christ came upon Jesus at baptism. And then the Spirit of the Christ left him when he was on the cross, which is why he said in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me alone? So they took that verse out of context and implied that that's when the Spirit left him and he felt alone for the first time because the Spirit had come off of him and he was merely a man. That's not the case. What we know about the Messiah we can find in Psalm chapter 22, because in there we have the crucifixion laid out exactly how it would happen years in advance. And it implies that he's not just a man dying on the cross, but he's the perfect son of God. But they were teaching that he died like any natural man dies. Now, why does that matter? Well, the crux or the the hinge point upon which our salvation lays is that Jesus Christ the Son of God was perfect in every way, and he died the perfect spotless lamb that could not only take away our sins, but cleanse us by his blood. If his blood isn't pure, if he was a son of human beings, he was merely a man, then he wasn't perfect, and he cannot save us. But we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that we're not to be pitied because Jesus not only died on the cross, but he rose from the grave, which is essentially a receipt guaranteeing that our salvation, that just as he rose from the dead, we will as well. And if any mere man dies and claims that we're going to rise from the dead, just like he did, then it would be a lie because no one's ever done that except for a few people that were risen by Jesus himself. They were risen from the dead or either that or by Elijah. So all that said is they were teaching in that day that Jesus wasn't actually the son of God. So we have this truth on trial, right? This truth. Was Jesus the Son of God, or was he merely a man? Well, if you have any trial, what do you have? You need witnesses. And so that's the main point of the message today. Can I get a witness? So in verse 5 or verse 6, we continue on, and he says this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These are the the triune Godhead, God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. (laughs) Sorry, I used to go to a very traditional church, and we would sing that all the time just as a reminder that we have God, he's one God, there is no other gods before him, but he is three persons, three manifestations, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now he says, notice the location, there are three that bear witness in heaven, but there are also three that bear witness on earth. 
So he continues on, verse 8, there are three that bear witness on earth, the Holy Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree as one. And so I have there for you, as we just read in verse 5, he who overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What is faith? Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Evidence, right? This truth is on trial. We need evidence. And what is the victory that overcomes the world but our faith? Faith is only as good as what it's placed in. If your faith is that your car will never break down, that's kind of a weak faith because even if you trust that car, it's going to let you down at some point. It might be 310,000 miles, but it's going to let you down at some point. It's going to wear out. But God is not that way. Our faith placed in Jesus, who does not change, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, will always bring us through. And he who, over, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So then he starts to talk about Jesus being the Son of God and the evidences we have for that. He brings up, he calls to the stand, if you will, three witnesses. The witness of the water, the blood, and the Holy Spirit. So who are these witnesses? Let's look at these witnesses. I put there for you, can I get a witness? <laughs> can I get a witness? Come on. So witness one, sorry, the water. Now, how can the water be a witness? Well, Jesus was born physically of water. Now, you and I know that when a woman goes into a labor, there's this whole thing where the water breaks. And so physically, he was born from Mary. So if there's a physical birth, and I think Joseph would tell you there was a very physical birth, he was there that day. If he could tell you, he would. It's the craziest thing he's ever been a part of because he knows this woman. He knows that they had never been together. And then there's this child. And so the Spirit has told them that this, you can, you can stay with this woman. She's not been unfaithful. She's, she's given you this child, but this child is of the Holy Spirit. So exhibit A is Jesus' baptism also. Now he was born in water and he was baptized in water. And if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, we see this as part of the gospel. Matthew 3, in verse 13, it says, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? Can you imagine the Son of God? You know who he is. He comes to you and says, I want you to dunk me underwater, just like you've been doing all these other people. And so John the Baptist protests and says, I'm not going to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to take your shoes off. You need to baptize me. I need cleansing. Because that was the whole point of baptism, was this physical cleansing that symbolized a spiritual cleansing. So they were coming to him and repenting of their sin, and Jesus, 
has already been testified about by John. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus, you don't have any sin. You came to take our sin, and I'm going to cleanse you? That's what he's saying. And so he says, I need to be baptized, and I'm coming to you. And Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. Well, what John didn't know is that this wasn't going to be a baptism like any other baptism where he was needing cleansing. This was going to be a baptism to fulfill righteousness. So notice that the son is there and he's submitting to the will of the father to fulfill all righteousness. If you know anything about the Old Testament, we won't turn there. Leviticus chapter 8 verse 6, when Aaron and his sons, the, the royal priesthood that would represent God to man and man to God, before they could minister the sacrifices in the temple, the first thing that had to take place was essentially baptism. They had this big laver, this big bathtub out front before they would go to minister, and they would literally, in this mikvah, they would be, go through ritual cleansing. It is to symbolize the spiritual cleansing, this, the, the um, confession of sin and, and getting right with God before they would enter his presence. And so Jesus up to this point in his ministry, has not had a ministry. He's been a son. He's been a carpenter. He's worked with his hands. And we really don't have a whole lot of what he did because he was doing ordinary things. He was doing what kids do that want to learn a trade, that want to get involved in the community. They start by learning a trade or going to school. And so he was just like everybody else. But at this point, he's getting consecrated, set apart for God's service. So the son is there submitting to baptism. So when he had been baptized, verse 16, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, who says the phrase, This is my son? the Father. No one else can say that. They can say it, but it doesn't mean that they are the Father. And so his Father speaks from heaven and approves of his Son. So you want to witness that he is the Son of God? The Father spoke audibly from heaven to be a witness of this. And notice also the Holy Spirit involved. He descends bodily in the form of a dove upon Jesus. And so we have this witness of the water he is baptized, he's cleansed, he's sanctified for service as a, a royal priest. And as this happens, the Father's involved, the Son's involved, the Spirit's involved. And these three testify in heaven. But then we have the witness of the blood. The blood proves his deity. Now, I know this is a graphic picture, and many don't like pictures of blood, and they don't like to talk about blood. But I just got through deer season, and there's a lot of dudes really happy about blood. Just pull up the rubles on opening day. Everybody's walking around looking at each other's blood. They're leaving it on the truck for a week or longer if their wife will let them. You know, um, we're watching it on TV. So here's the only blood that really matters. The reason we have blood. Leviticus um, and I didn't write it there for you, but Leviticus actually says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no cleansing or removal 
of guilt and sin. That's why the Old Testament sacrifices, as a, as a Levitical priest and as a priest himself, there was a lot of blood involved in forgiveness. If you worked in that line of work and people came and, I've sinned against my brother. Okay, we got to kill something. It was very real to you that in order to have removal of sin, that there had to be bloodshed, literal bloodshed. Not years ago, but now. We would get up here, we'd slit the throat of a lamb, we would lay it on the altar, we would drain the blood, we cut out all the fatty lobes. Read Leviticus, it's just riveting. But as this would all take place, it was to show how costly that forgiveness is. That this animal that they were killing wasn't just something they had on the back 40 that they just enjoyed having. This was an animal that would be their food. So if I sin, I'm costing my family food. So I would have to go give this offering. And so it would cost us our livelihood. But Jesus, this proves his deity and his humanity because he wasn't just like any other man. His blood was shed, and he also wasn't, what a, the other thing they would say, that he was just a spirit emanation. He wasn't actually, you couldn't touch him. You couldn't feel him. You couldn't, you know, like he wasn't actually there. He was just kind of like a hologram. But the reality is, is he had physical blood with flowing through his veins. As a matter of fact, the scars from the crucifixion, he will bear for eternity. When you see him face to face, I think one of the reasons that there will be tears he needs to wipe away is because we will see the holes in his hands. We would see the hole in his side. We would see the scars from the, the thorns on his face. He, he was brutally murdered beyond recognition. One of the accounts actually says that the cat of nine tails hit him so hard so many times that you could see his ribs through his side because it was so brutal. So Jesus' death on the cross in John chapter 12, verse 28, is another witness that he was deity. And I would encourage you this week, if you want a really uh, perfect picture of what the crucifixion looked like in detail, centuries before it happened, read Psalm 22 and you'll see that. But another witness we have, apart from just his blood being shed, is the Father involved in the crucifixion. And if you don't think he was involved, darkness happened at noontime. Not cloudy with a chance of a little bit of sun, not a little bit of drizzle. It got so dark that everybody got scared. The darkness that we're talking about was the darkness that happened in Exodus during the plagues where God literally gave them, so, there was no street lights. It was perfectly dark. You couldn't see the hand in front of your face. And the father creates this darkness as he turns his face away from his son, not able to look upon the sin that was covering him. And then there was earthquakes. The ground shook so much that the soldier standing there watching the crucifixion, this hardened man who had seen death, who had seen brutal murder, who had seen all the things that war brings, said, truly, this was not any other man. This man must have been the son of God. That was a non-believer saying that. And then the torn veil, the veil that was ripped from top to bottom in the temple at the crucifixion. He dies, says it is finished. The son didn't rip the veil. He was on the cross being brutally murdered. The spirit didn't rip the veil. The father 
ripped the veil from top to bottom, opening the way where no longer just can a priest go in there, but we, because of the blood of the Lamb, could walk into the very presence of God where only certain people were allowed before. Now he says, come on in if you come under my blood. Come on in. You've received the forgiveness. Now we can go in boldly. And so then Hebrews chapter 9, and I'm going to turn there. Chapter 9, verse 16. As the writer is writing to these Hebrews, he says, where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Now maybe we wouldn't use the word testament. We would use the word will. You know, we, we would leave a will or maybe you have a trust set up so that your kids can well work it out and they won't, you know, kill each other over who gets the china. You know, but you have a testator, you have a, a, a testament or a will and testament. There must also of necessity be the death of the one that made the will for a testament is in force after men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission or removal of guilt. And so therefore it was necessary for these copies to go through the same thing. But essentially he says, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear to the presence of God for us as a priest, not that he should offer himself often, as many kind of believe that every week that we take communion, that there's this dying of Jesus again on the cross, and they would even keep the crucifix on the wall. But Jesus died once and for all so that we could be saved. So he would, he would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of time, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He says, and it, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, the judgment that we all will receive one day. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And so the blood testifies of his deity. So the third witness, he says, he says, not of the, not only by water, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Now, another touch on that is that the water and the blood, if you remember, after his crucifixion, he was still breathing, and then he died. He breathed his last breath. He says, it is finished. And then because they didn't really believe he was dead because nobody died that quickly, and many see that, and they go, well, he must have given up his spirit. He didn't await until he was dead physically, and then but my point is, is to prove, to make sure he was dead before Passover because they had to take him down off the cross, they would usually break your legs so you couldn't hold yourself up anymore. But with Jesus, they got to him and they were like, he's already dead. How's that possible? 
So just to make sure, they take a spear and they gouged his side, opening up his chest cavity. And what you find is that it wasn't just water that came out, but it was water and blood. He was so dead that his water and blood stopped mixing. They kind of separated, which is a sign that the body is dead. So that testifies that he was dead. He bodily and physically had died on the cross, showing that he wasn't just an emanation. He was a physical body as well. And so he says, and it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. So the witness, the third witness, is the Spirit. This is the, I want to point out this, this is kind of mind-blowing, but who was present the day that Jesus was baptized? Well, there was John the Baptist, and there was a multitude of people, but we see that the Holy Spirit was present. The Holy Spirit was also present at conception. The Holy Spirit was also present at his crucifixion. The Holy Spirit is now still present on earth. He still bears witness on earth. He comes alongside of us before we believe. He convicts us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. His Spirit poured out upon us gives us the ability to not only hear the things, but also believe the things that are in Scripture and the things that we testify. But the Spirit also bears witness of the baptism, the cross, and the resurrection. He's the only one that's been there for each one of them, and he's the only one that's still alive. Because many people go, well, if I was there that day, I might believe it, and, and if I was around. But the reality is none of us could have lived that long, and he still waits to come the second time. So he leaves us this witness that's still alive and working. And if you turn to John chapter 15, Jesus spoke about the spirit that he would send after he ascended back to the Father. He says, I don't leave you as orphans, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And in verse 26 there, it says, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father... He will testify of me. The work of the Spirit is he always points people to Jesus Christ. Not to a man, not to a system, not to a religion, but he always points people to Jesus Christ. And if you look one page over in chapter 16, verse 14, he says of the Spirit, He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine, and he will declare it, to you. Remember, he told Peter, he says, don't worry what happens on the day that you are drugged before powers and, and kings and nations. He says, on the day that you risk being judged, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. He will testify of Jesus. And so also in Romans chapter 8, we see the fulfillment of this promise that Paul tells us there in Romans 8, verse 15, where Paul testifies, you did not receive the Holy Spirit, excuse me, the spirit of bondage again to be afraid, but you received the Holy Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, that we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that he may also be glorified together with him. And so it's interesting because this, the Spirit testifies and is an external witness to the whole world. But as believers, when we're baptized, we also, if we will ask, be given the Holy Spirit that will be an internal witness, if you will, that will give us assurance internally, though our hearts condemn us, the Spirit bears witness within us that what we believe is actually true. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need the Holy Spirit. And I love this because the Father wants us to have the Holy Spirit, and the key ingredient to us receiving the Holy Spirit is that we ask. He says, if you ask, the the Father will give you the Holy Spirit, he says, without measure. He will pour it out upon you so much that you will overflow, and he's okay with that. It's not like when you pour your kids some milk, and you're like, I'm going to give them enough where they don't make a mess. He says, I want it to overflow. I want you to splash on people. I want my presence to be so full in you that people can't help but just get smattered with the presence of Jesus in your life. And so I love this because um, this all points to these three witnesses we looked at in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. It says that any matter is established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He gives three witnesses to prove the deity of Christ because the law says you have to have three witnesses in order to establish a matter. Now, eyewitnesses are important, right? We need eyewitnesses to prove any case. Otherwise, we we have doubts. And so the Lord is not above providing witnesses for you and I so that we might believe. And what's interesting is in Hebrews chapter 6, he says, the greater swears by the lesser. Excuse me, the lesser swears by the greater. And what it says there is, if you or I were going to swear, hopefully we don't do that. We let our yes be yes and our no be no. But many times, like when you're younger and you want to get a loan for your car, who's got to sign that loan with you? Well, somebody's got to actually got the cash flow. If you don't have enough money or you don't have the income, they say, hey, your parents or somebody's got to sign for you, right? Well, if God makes a promise... He swears by a name. Well, he can swear by no one greater. He's the king. He's the king of the universe. And so Hebrews chapter 6 says, when he swears, he swears by himself. He uses his own name as a guarantee because he's got the money. He's got the authority to fulfill the promise. And so as we have these three witnesses, we move on and we say, okay, If that's the case, we have these witnesses. Let's move on to verse 9. He says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Remember when Peter said, Truly you're the Son of God? Because Jesus said, Hey, are you going to leave me also? There were people in the crowd as he's sharing at Caesarea Philippi. He says, who do men say that I am? And some of them said John the Baptist, and some of them said Elijah, and some of them said one of the prophets, and one of them said Jeremiah. He said, well, who do you believe that I am? And 
Peter speaks up, because he always does. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. You couldn't believe this unless God revealed it to you. And so Peter kind of gets proud of himself, but the point is he says the same thing here. He who believes in the Son of God, they can only believe that because the witness is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. That's evidence of the Spirit. And he who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given of his Son. Do you know that? When people reject the truth about Jesus, they're not just saying, well, I think he's a good teacher. They're saying that God himself, the very God that gives us breath, the God that keeps your heart beating, the God that has given you life, the God that sent his son, they're not just saying, well, I, don't, I just don't agree with him. They're calling God a liar. And what you need to know about calling God a liar is that is actually the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people get worked up about those verses. But if you look in Mark chapter 3, verse 28 through 29, he says there, all things will be forgiven the sons of men. I'm going to turn there so I don't misquote it. Mark 3, verse 28. He says this, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the witness of the Spirit never has forgiveness. Now, what is the witness of the Spirit? That Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the only way to be saved. He says, but he who blasphemes or rejects the testimony of the Spirit never has forgiveness, but, it is, but is subject to eternal separation or condemnation because they, they were telling Jesus, you have an unclean spirit. They were saying that the works of Jesus were because of an unclean spirit. They were blaspheming. And so all of that to say that the witness of the Spirit is very important. And if you reject the witness of the Spirit, you call God a liar. Well, if you turn to John chapter 5, in verse 31, Jesus said this very thing. He said, if I, Jesus bear witness of myself. Did you notice that those threefold witness on earth didn't include the sun? It included the water, the blood, and the spirit, but it never included the sun. Interesting to me. But he said in verse 31 of John 5, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, In other words, I don't need to testify, but I will send somebody to testify. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. That's John the Baptist. Yet I do not receive testimony from man. He also didn't say, believe what people tell you. He says, but I say these things that you may be saved. John was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who has sent me has testified of me. 
You have never, you've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures. Now you remember he's speaking to those that, that knew the scriptures. They knew the word of God. And he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. But these scriptures testify of me. And so you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. He says, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. Excuse me. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. And he speaks of Moses. You trust in the law to save you. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you ever believe my words? See, the law was all about Jesus. It was not about a ladder that we could climb to get ourselves to heaven. It was a list of requirements that he knew we would not be able to fulfill. So then we would continue looking for a savior. And so eternal life is had in the son. And if you have the son, verse 12 says you have life. And then he says in verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, again, go through 1 John and underline know. The word know is in there like a gajillion times. That's not a real number. It's not really in there a gajillion times, but it's in there a lot. It's called hyperbole. But he says there that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name, the character the very presence of the Son of God. These things I've written to you so that you may believe. And if you look at John chapter 20, verse 31, the same author, he ends his, his gospel account by saying, I've written to you these things. And he said, and if I wrote all the things that I saw Jesus do, there wouldn't be room in, in this life for the volumes of the books that I could write. But he says, all these things that I've chosen to write to you, I've written that you may believe in the Son of God. So the question becomes, if he's written these things so that we may know that we have eternal life, what are some birthmarks of the believer? John chapter 3 says, unless you've been born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. You will never see the presence of God. You'll be eternally separated from him unless you've been born again. So I've written for you, and I stole it from Warren Wearsby. So I quoted him, though, so it's not stealing. But the point is, he said there are birthmarks to the believer. Your children have birthmarks that prove that they are your kids, right? Kids, you have birthmarks that prove that who's your parents are. You look like them. You got their hairline. Pray for Judah. You have their height. You have marks that you're their kids. You're, you know, they look like you. They act like you. <laughs> Lord, help us, right? Uh, but the reality is you have birthmarks if you are a son of God because you've believed in the son of God, you will have birthmarks attached. 
to who you are, the way you conduct your life. He says, so I write these things so that you may know. Check out your birthmarks. Inspect this list. And it's not a comprehensive list. This is just what John wrote. But he says, 1 John 2, 29, the question becomes, do I practice righteousness? 1 John 3, 9, do I continue in habitual sin? If so, that's a birthmark that you don't have the son. Do I love other Christians? Chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 7. Do I love other Christians? I think that's in there for emphasis. Do you love the brethren? Not do you say you love them, but do you actually enjoy them? Do you find ways to love each other? This is an evidence of the Spirit within you. Chapter 5, verse 4. Am I able to overcome the world through faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Do I have faith in Jesus that helps me be an overcomer? Or is life overcoming me? Or is the testimony of others overcoming me? Is my life running me or am I in charge of my life as I submit myself to the Spirit? For the believer, this list is to help confirm that what you believe is actually what you are. Not what you say, but what you do. And if these things are absent, I wouldn't say that these things are to condemn you. Condemnation separates us from God. These things are to convict you and bring you close and say, Lord, I'm not what I say I am. Will you please change me? Will you give me, please? Will you make me born again? Will you give me your Holy Spirit to bear witness within me, to give me confirmation that I am what I say I am, but also to bear witness outside of me, that I would be able to testify before men that you are in fact the Son of God. You are the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, that you're actually the Lord of my life, not just something that I say. And as your Lord of my life, would you bear fruit? Would you cause your Son to be glorified in me? So as we approach Christmas, and as we celebrate the birth of the Son, the physical emanation, the physical birth of God putting on human flesh, we all celebrate baby Jesus. But are you allowing the King the adult Jesus, the Jesus that died for the sins of the world, are you allowing him to have lordship over your life? If you are, these things will be present. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. I pray that if there's anybody here today that's convicted that these things aren't showing up in their lives, myself included, Lord, would you bear witness would you bring us to the end of our own strengths? Help us to realize that we are not smart enough. We are not good enough. And God darn it, we are not likable. But you loved us when we were yet sinners. And so, Father, I pray if there's anybody here today that doesn't have the evidence of the Spirit within them, that they would cry out to you, that they would confess to you, I'm not good enough, Lord, I need you. And would you give them in their childlike faith Pour out your spirit upon each one of us, Lord. Make us what we say we are. Let us not live as hypocrites anymore. And in the meantime, Lord, if these things are evident and we've been doubting, Lord, would you remind us that our salvation is based upon your perfect life that happened and, and the spirit bears witness. Your blood bears witness. The water, you submitted to all the things the Father put before you and it means life for us. 
but it meant death for you. And so, Lord, thank you for this free gift that cost you so much. We're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.